0: All right, today we're Romans 6:12 through 23. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the very word of God.
1: Well, we're making our way through the book of Romans together. And today we are wrapping up this sixth chapter of the book of Romans, a chapter which seeks to move us uh, along with chapter five into kind of the, the, the central part of the book of Romans and the application of what it means to be justified by faith in Christ. So Paul has told us the beginning of the book of Romans that one of his major purposes for writing is out of the reality that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He is not ashamed of the gospel, and so he wants to proclaim it more and more. He wants to proclaim it both among those who have not yet heard it, but he wants to proclaim it. Even more among those who've heard it over and over and over again. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now that word salvation it is one of those words that tends to uh, have only a certain limited meaning for many people who've grown up in the church. But, but think of it Holistically, think of it in terms of the world that God made, the world that God has now come to redeem in Jesus Christ. So if God is through the gospel giving to us his power for salvation, then this is good news for everybody in practically anything you could imagine yourself to be in. It's good news not only for someone on their deathbed, but it's good news for you. However old you are, however young you are, whatever situation you find yourself in. The power of God for salvation so that there can be real change. Real change in your life, real change in the world that we live in, real change in relationships. Everything that is broken, God has come to redeem, to restore, to make it the way it is meant to be. So the problem that we face in Romans chapter 6, we talked about this last week, is the problem of what the Bible calls sin. But again, don't think of sin in just that limited sense. Maybe some great moral wrong that you might think of committing. Sin is... At this point in the Bible, especially here in Romans chapter 6, is conceived as a power, a a dominant power over all of creation, A, a power that rules, that reigns, that has everyone under its dominion. The evidence that sin reigns over all creation, over your relationships, over your ambitions, is the reality of death. Death is the undeniable evidence of the power of sin. So now Romans chapter 6 is a chapter devoted to the question of what then is our relationship as a Christian, as a believer in the Messiah, to this power over all of our life, over all of creation. Having been justified, that is, vindicated from sin's condemnation, all by grace, entirely as a gift, does that mean then that nothing is to be done to address sin's power? We saw last week that the way in which we are justified and so freed from sin's penalty is by our union with Christ so that his victory over sin means that we too are victorious over sin. Christ died not only to free us from sin's penalty, but listen and believe, Christian. He died also to free us from sin's power. We who have died with Christ, Romans 6, 7 says, have been set free from sin. Just let it sit over you for a minute. Everything that results in death, that power has been broken for those who are in Christ. So to be a Christian means not only that sin can no longer condemn us. Praise God for that. We sing that, we believe that, it is at the heart of the gospel, but it also means, to be a Christian means that sin needs no more control us. We don't have to obey it. We don't have to live under its reign. So now in verse 11, where we ended last week, we can see that Paul has moved from the indicative to the imperative, He has told us what is true about us in our union with Christ, in our relation to sin. But now, but now he urges us and he urges his readers to appropriate this truth into our daily lives. This is who we are in Christ. Therefore, let's resist that power of sin. Again, don't just think of it as that act that you commit. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a dominant power. The evidence of its domination being death. We're supposed to resist it. We're supposed to fight against it. And the way we fight against it here in this passage before us is with a superior power, serving a greater master and expecting better fruit. We fight against sin armed with a superior power. Serving a greater master and expecting better fruit. This is how we are called now because of who we are in Christ, because of our union with Christ to resist the dominant power of sin. So let's take a look at these things. First, in verses 12 to 14, Christians are encouraged to fight against the power of sin, but but notice not to dethrone it but because it's already been dethroned. Christians fight sin uh, like victors, not like rebels trying to overthrow a power. Do you see the difference? We possess as Christians a superior power than the power that sin yields over us. So verse 12 is a command. Here's what it says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It is grammatically actually a command. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. But but that command, if you're a Christian, should not feel overwhelming. It is actually a command of encouragement since it comes only after what we saw In Romans chapter 6, like in verse 5, which reminds us that we're united with Christ in his triumphant death and the invincible power of his resurrection. So the command goes something like this. Since sin has no power over you, don't let it overpower you. Don't, Don't let sin give you commands that you have to obey because you don't have to obey it. You've been set free from its power. Nevertheless, of course, it is a command. It requires action on the part of the Christian. What must we do? Well, we're supposed to fight it. We're supposed to resist it. We're we're supposed to watch out for it, refuse to give it any place. Sin must not be allowed to take command, he says, in our mortal bodies. Now, when he says mortal bodies here, the view that what he has in mind is not so much specific sins that you commit with your body. Rather, by saying mortal body, Paul wants to point out that the Christian already has the upper hand over sin, even though we still live in bodies that die. We know, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, that when we are raised from the dead, bodily, on the last day we will be raised immortal incorruptible and on that day it will be simply impossible for sin to take root in our lives its very presence will be will be obliterated but we are still in our mortal bodies and therefore susceptible to sin's intrusion and yet the power of that future resurrection has already come to us because we're united to the resurrected Christ. So we must fight against sin like the victors that we are in Christ. We must not let it rule over us, making us obey its passage. So, how, how do we fight sin? How, how do we keep it from reigning over us? Temptation to sin, we cannot prevent, but the command of verse 12 assumes, assumes that the Christian has the power to say to any temptation, no, I will not give in to sinful passions and desires. Now, whatever you think of sin or even however you might define it, I want you to consider for just a moment That this ability, the ability to say no to passions and desires, the the ability to somehow curb or control desires or urges, to not give in to every impulse, is something that is a common quest for all humanity. The Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus wrote that a person is not free by a full enjoyment of what is desired, but by controlling the desire. All kinds of secular and religious, if we're honest, self-help manuals are created for precisely this kind of fight. You probably have some on your bookshelf. (laughs) I just got one sent to me this week in the mail. I don't know why. I just, I got a package like, oh, a book, open it up. And I look at this book written by a well-known pastor, and it's all about how to make or break a habit in 30 days. And I'm thinking, really? Really? Another one of these? So call it breaking a bad habit if you want. But what we're talking about here is what Paul calls sin as a power over us that seeks to control us. And we need a distinctively Christian way to fight it. So verse 13 gives us the Christian way. I, I, to be fair, I haven't read the book, so I didn't say who it was. Don't come ask me. Well, you can ask me if you want later, but I'm not going to say it here. Um, so to be fair, v- verse 13 tells us the Christian way, and maybe the author is getting at this. I did look through to see if there was a scripture index at the back, and maybe see if he had Romans 6 to 13. No scripture index, so may, I, maybe. But here's the Christian way. Here's what it says. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now notice twice we see the verb present. This twice repeated verb tells us that we need... What I call both a defensive strategy and an offensive strategy. Anybody that likes sports knows if you're going to win, you've got to have a good defense. You need a good offense. You've got to have both of them. So defensively, do not present your members to sin. You simply have to identify where it is that sin seeks to get power over you. You might be able to know this yourself or somebody who knows you well might be able to help. But let's just be clear. If you're giving in to porn, you need a filter and accountability software in your computer. If you're binge watching Netflix, you need to cancel your subscription today. If you are raging on social media... Or you're doom-scrolling to see who else is raging on social media. You should probably quit Twitter or Facebook. It won't kill you. Or Instagram. These are common sense strategies, aren't they? Even if they're not easy. But they're also not distinctively Christian. That, that first part of verse 13, if you just end there, any self-help manual can basically tell you that. Stop sinning. Stop giving in. Do whatever you need to put some defensive strategies up. Okay. And that's good. That's important. You need to do that. But there's a second verb present, and this is the distinctively Christian way. It's not enough to know what not to do. It doesn't really take... The power of the Holy Spirit to know that. Not in every case. What we need is what should we do instead? Christian fights sin, he says here, not just by resisting, by saying no, but by saying yes and by resting. By, by resting. Sin has no chance where God is cherished. Sin has no chance. Where God is cherished it's in our union with Christ that we find a stronger power not just to say no to sin but to say yes to that which truly satisfies we are to present ourselves to God he says look here's the here's the secret here's the distinctively Christian thing about fighting or resisting sin We present ourselves to God as those who've been brought back from death to life. Only in this identity of sharing in the resurrected power of Christ can we find a superior power to the temptations of sin. Now the point is that it is only in Christ that we can prevail in this fight and not just hold our ground, shifting from one impulse one sinful impulse to another. We, we, we stand in a new ground, which is altogether different from anything else that we can be offered. This isn't just a new strategy for life. This is a new reality. In Christ, and only in Christ, can we live a new kind of life, a new quality of life. In Christ, we have a power that is altogether different than any popular or religious theory could ever give to us. What what is this greater power? It's the power of resurrection. The power of resurrection. It's the power of a new creation. A new creation that has already dawned upon you if you are in Christ. So you can play defense against sin all day long. But until you know the offensive power, of presenting yourself to God as those who've been brought back from death to life, you won't stand a chance against sin. You may curb its uglier effects to some degree. You may be able to dress it up Make it more socially acceptable. You may be able to break a really bad habit. Let's take laziness, for example. But what good will that do if in its place you simply develop the more celebrated sin of being a workaholic, which is usually euphemized today as busyness? Verse 14 says something astounding about this fight against sin. The reason that we Christians fight against sin like victors over sin, the reason why sin will have no dominion over us is not because we've mastered David Allen's getting things done, but because we are not under law, but under grace. The power of resurrection is, is the power of grace. It's the only power greater than sin. Because remember what Romans 5.20 says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. It's a greater power. Do you see it? The power of resurrection is the power of grace. So now, in verses 15 through 19, we find the second way that we as Christians fight sin. We fight sin as victors, yes, because the power of sin has already been broken over us by our union with Christ. But fight against sin we must because we are under a new master. We're under a new master. So when Paul says in verse 14, we are no longer under law but under grace, He knows, he knows that that can easily be misunderstood. So then he says in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now you probably notice that's a very similar question to the one that was addressed back in verse 1 of chapter 6. It also came up in a different form back in chapter 3. So here for the third time, he's addressed a similar type question, but this one right here is different from the others. Back in verse 1, the question being asked is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That, that question was whether or not God intended to leave us under the power of sin in order to magnify his grace. And Paul said, no way, no way. Was God's purpose to just let sin keep wrecking havoc on us so that he could keep applying the curative medicine of grace? Paul says, God forbid. God's purpose and abounding abounding grace has always been to bring an end to sin, to its very power and presence. Now, right here, Romans 6.15, the question is the one that grace usually brings up. Well what will it matter if we fight against sin? In other words, given the promise of Romans 6:14, why give any attention to fighting sin? It's too difficult perhaps. It just makes me feel guilty or shameful. And hey, we're all under grace, so who cares? And to this, notice once again, Paul says, God forbid, by no means. It's simply a false conclusion. And Paul says, don't draw that conclusion. So understand what it means to be under law. The law here is the Jewish law. It's the Torah. To be under law is To be counted a member of God's covenant people in what now we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. To be under law is to be Jewish, to be Israel, to be in covenant with God. And in that Old Covenant, obedience to the Torah is what marked one out as being a legitimate member of the covenant and in relationship with God. That is all a really good thing, right? Like, that's what you want to be is in covenant relationship with God. So to be under law is a good thing. Unless, unless a new covenant has come. Unless there's a new testament that has been inaugurated. The gospel is the announcement that the promised new covenant has come. Not a replacement of the old covenant, but it's promised fulfillment. Accordingly those who are truly God's people cannot remain under law under the old covenant with torah keeping as its distinguishing mark to do so is to be associated with sin and death characterizing the dominant power of those over those who are in Adam to be under law is to reject the promise of God to save those who are in the new Adam in Christ in the Messiah So if that's true, then a Torah observance or to be under law no longer marks the people of God. So the question comes, well, then we can just do away with it. We can just do away with law and rules and regulations. We can can just do whatever we please. Now, just consider for a moment this question in our own context. How, How do you and I think of the gospel under grace and its relation to Christian living. When we, when we emphasize the radical grace and love of God, what effect does it have on you and me? Yeah. Many of us know all too well what it feels like to be in an environment that is too, shall we say, Religious where you feel the people around you are just looking down on you, disapproving of you, despising you for not measuring up to their standards? I know I can I can be like that. Self-righteous, judgmental, condescending. I'm well aware that any church including ours, can feel that way? Controlling? Harsh? Not accepting of people who are not like most of us? The gospel of grace, as we've seen, is the only antidote for legalism like that. It's the gospel of grace. But... But in our quest to eliminate legalism, we will shoot ourselves in the foot if we seek to eliminate the law or any kind of emphasis on obedience and sin killing and biblical morality and Christian ethics and righteous behavior. So what do we do? Paul reminds us in verse 16, Do you not know... That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In in other words, while no one can serve two masters, as Jesus famously said, understand this, no one can serve no master either. If you obey sin, that is, if you don't fight it and resist it, then you are enslaved to it. The gospel of grace sets you free from sin's mastery, but it does so in order to put you in service to another master. Are you with me? Now, it's interesting in verse 16, this master takes the name obedience, which seems a bit odd, but it seems that Paul wants to stress that if you are under grace, you are obligated to obey the God of grace. You can't say, I am free from the law, I'm under grace, and then disobey the God who set you free. So we can't do away with calling one another to be obedient to God. We, we can't stop probing our hearts, discerning where sin has taken root. We can't stop confessing sin to one another and, and helping each other fight with all that we've got to eliminate it. Doing so would not be a way to highlight God's grace. It would be a way of turning away from the liberating grace that God has already showered upon us in Christ. You see, to be under grace is explained quite clearly in verses 17 through 19. What does it mean then to be under grace? We saw what it means to be under law. We can't stay under law when the new covenant has been inaugurated. To do so is to stay in the realm of death. But what does it mean to be under grace? Verses 17 to 19. Far from suggesting that it means anything like being careless about sin, Paul expresses thanks that his readers, these Roman Christians, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, Paul can see in the lives of these Roman Christians that the promise of grace, the promise of the new covenant has been fulfilled. According to Jeremiah 31, 33, in the new covenant, God would write his law on the hearts of his people. These Christians, Paul knows, he has heard, they've given evidence that the gospel of grace they received did not incite more and more disobedience to God, but rather more and more obedience. But, th- but this was obedience from the heart, <laughs> the kind of willing, joyful obedience that gives evidence that they see themselves somewhat ironically as the happy slaves of God. Why were they happy? Because they were once slaves of sin. But he says in verse 10, 18, you've been set free. You become a slave of righteousness. It's a, it, Notice the irony. It's, We were once slaves, Paul says, but then you were set free to be enslaved to someone else. We were set free by being enslaved to another. We are either enslaved to God or we're enslaved to sin. We are either under the power of grace or we're under the power of law. And only one of those enslavements is true freedom. Now, Paul all but apologizes in verse 19 for speaking like this. Even in his day, to frame the relationship between God and his people in terms of a relationship between a master and a slave is not the best that could be done. But Paul seems to say that he's doing this in order to stress That grace calls us necessarily to total allegiance, complete obedience to God that necessarily correlates with one who is now under grace rather than under law. You see, lurking underneath these verses here in Romans 6 is Israel's great story of the exodus. In which they were freed from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. How? How were they set free? Did they, were they set free by a revolt from within? We've had enough of this. We're taking him down. You know that's not how the story goes. They were set free by being enslaved to God. But what now? Verse 19 ends by saying that just as you once had all your energies employed to serve sin, so now use those same energies to serve righteousness. We've been set free by grace not to be passive, but to use every last bit of energy that we've got to serve a new and greater master. So Christian disciplines like daily prayer... Meditation on scripture, corporate worship, Christian community, those are practical ways to do what verse 19 commands. Don't just read verse 19 and let it lay in the abstract. The tried and true practices of our Christian ancestors is we pray, we meditate on the word, we worship God together, we Engage in Christian community with all of its difficulties and all of its demands on your schedules. Yes. Hey, I know. I know. Christian liturgy is simply the habit of centering our lives on a new master. On Christ. Not on cold rules separated from a personal God. We live lives of obedience to Christ, not because he demands it like a taskmaster, but because he's worth it. He set us free. He is a far greater master than sin. Do you see it? Okay. So then the result... The result of serving Christ, the result of serving a greater master, the result of putting all of your energies into habits that are centered around the person of Jesus. The result is much better fruit than you could have ever had without it. Much better fruit. So after all, just consider what you had when you were a slave of sin, when you were free in regard to righteousness, Paul says in verse 20. What fruit (laughs) were you getting at that time? Some of you, some of you can think back to what your life was like before you clearly, decisively came to faith in Christ. Some of you know this well. If not, if you like me, had the privilege of growing up as a Christian, then you should do yourself a favor and make friends with brothers and sisters here who did not grow up that way. It can help you. Where were we destined to end up if we go it alone without God and his grace? If you reject Christ, if you say no to the habits of formation under and centered around Jesus, where will you be? Where will you be without God and His grace? What hope could you have apart from Christ? What if Christ had never come? Where where would we be? Where where would our hope be? We we could have no real hope because of the very real power of sin. Just ask anybody who doesn't even believe in Jesus. Say, where are you going to end up? The answer is death. <laughs> That's where it all ends. Literally. There, there could po- not possibly be a hope to vanquish it once and for all. Once again, the billionaires in our day are trying to figure out how they can live forever. I just saw this the other day. <laughs> it's a fight you're destined to lose. You could never resist the power of sin. Again, not just those deeds you commit, but the power of sin over us. You could never fight it from any place of superior power apart from Christ. You couldn't. If you turn away from Christ, if you stop obeying him, where where are you going to go? You don't have the option of serving no master. Can you remember then where you were before when you were reaping reaping the harvest of your shameful deeds? Was that leading you in a hopeful path or was the only possible outcome death? Or maybe consider, brothers and sisters here, the practical outcomes of the four G's that we've come to know and love here at Crosstown. We had a membership class last night. We were reminding each other of the four G's. I'm like, oh yeah, I should say this again. It's been a while. Four truths about God. They're on our banners right here. That will set you free from the misery of seeking to control your own life. God is great. You don't have to be in control. Or fearing other people. God is glorious. You don't have to fear and seek the approval of others or trying to earn God's favor. Let me do another deed so God will finally smile upon me. Don't you know God is gracious? You don't have to earn his smile or seeking something, maybe this new thing I just bought, or this new promotion I just got, or this new house I just acquired, nothing will satisfy you other than God, like we sang this morning, who is good, who is good. See, there is better fruit to be had, better experiences, better outcomes to be enjoyed. Yes, even now, (laughs) even now in the transitory life, that we live. To be set free from sin and to become a slave of God means what he says right here the fruit you get, look at it, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is the great promise of God the fruit of a life under grace. That is, in total allegiance not to a church, not to new sets of rules, but total allegiance. To Christ, in whom grace is found, is that which leads progressively to sanctification. In a word, it's holiness. But even here, <laughs> holiness tends to bring up in many people's mind, growing around the church, growing up around the church, not, something far from happy. But we're talking here about the happy slaves of Jesus the Messiah who works everything together for good, the good of being conformed to Christ himself, as we'll find in Romans 8. See, that's what holiness is. Holiness is not being conformed to the legalistic standards of other Christians. Don't get under bondage again by seeking to be conformed to some other Christian's ways. It's being conformed Made more and more like the greatest human there ever was. To be made more and more the human that God intends for you to be. We sang the great hymn this morning, holy, holy, holy. What does it mean to be holy, merciful, and mighty? I love that. Isn't that amazing? Full of mercy full of power. This is Christ, the perfect human, perfect in power, love and purity. Oh man, I want to be like that, don't you? This is who God is and we, his promise to us is to conform us to the image of Christ himself. It's absolutely astounding. Now it's a progression to be sure, brothers and sisters. We're not promised lives of material prosperity physical health, not prior to the resurrection, but the fruit that comes from living lives under the lordship of Christ is still infinitely better. You see, the gospel of grace, to be under grace is not to be left to ourselves and to the false gospel of self-identity. It's simply misleading for us to convey that God accepts us just the way we are. No. There's better news than that. He accepts us despite the way we are, receiving us only in Christ and for Christ's sake, and never intending to leave us where we are, but to transform us into the likeness of his son. Wow. I'm looking at people today that God has promised he's going to transform into the holy picture of his own son. Astounding. That's That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are. And what would that mean? What would it mean if God... Fulfills his promise and transforms you, brother or sister, into the image of his son. What would it mean to have fruit that leads to sanctification? What would the end be? Look at it. Verse 22. The end of sanctification is simply eternal life. Not an endless existence in a disembodied heaven that you could never imagine but a resurrected, embodied life in a material universe. Life the way God always meant for us to have. Life where sin has no dominion. A life you can begin to enjoy and taste now because you've been united to Jesus. Let's pray together.